Hello and welcome to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice and abundance. My name is Gabby Lee Billing for those of you playing at home and on today's show we are doing something a little bit different. In case you can't tell, I am not Mr. Goose McGrath. No, I have given Goose the week off this week. He's allowed a little bit of, bit of downtime. Um, and on today's episode, we are doing a bit of a recap on the last 12 months. So in the last 12 months, we've actually released 51 episodes of absolute gold, if I do say so myself. The last 12 months, 51 episodes. And there's been a cover of, you know, market updates, investing strategy, amazing interviews. And you even got to meet some of our team. Um, And so what we've done is we've really boiled it down to the top 10 episodes over the last 12 months. And so this is top 10 favorites, top 10 best, top 10 listener choice. We've actually reached out to you guys and asked, what episodes did you actually get the most amount of impact from this year? And so if you've loved the show and you feel like you have maybe just blown through the last year, I think a lot of us have, and really just kind of look back and go, what the hell happened this year? What did we talk about on the show? This is the episode for you to go back and listen to, get a refresher on the top 10 concepts and people that we interviewed and either get a refresher on what the hell happened or you'll even pick up some more nuggets of gold um, from those episodes or if you've got a friend that you know who would really love the show but maybe just kind of sending them the podcast link and saying hey guys just check out all these episodes this is the episode to share because it gives them a good real taster of what we've covered this year and the kind of stuff that we do so this is the episode to share um, and if you love the show yourself, if you love this episode, as always, feel free to send us an email, hello at dash dot dot com dot au. You know I love hearing your feedback. I love receiving these emails. I love hearing what you think, what you think we should be improved, what your favorite takeaways were, what are some things that you took away and really started to implement yourself and how it's improved your lives. I love hearing all of these stories. And without further ado let's get into it thank you so much for the last 12 months um thank you for listening to the show thank you for showing up and and listening to goose and i in your ear holes every week it's amazing to to be connected with you all and to to be able to share some knowledge and to be able to really impact you so without further ado i'll see you on the inside If you can understand that um, the ideal time to buy is earlier in the cycle than when it's a hotspot, don't buy when it's a hotspot. And, it, and it's some easy identification points to know whether it's, whether it's already too late. Are there multiple offers being put on properties? It's a really simple one, right? If you're trying to buy a property and the real estate agents are saying, well, we're going to multi-offer, yeah. i.e. I won't accept your offer straight away. I'm going to accept 10 different offers and then we're going to analyze them. You're already too late. Yep. Right now, agent sentiment is such a good <coughs> yeah, qualitative totally. measurement. Yeah, yeah, totally. Agent sentiment is is a huge one. Yep. Now, interesting, and so there's all these kind of signs. You know, if 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 suddenly it's gone from two or three people going to an open home to sixty people going to an open home, you're too late. Right? 
if you see if you see people are paying you know 30 40 50% above the asking price you're already too late you know it, it, these are all these are all signs that you're already too late and another really interesting sign is is if the yields have previously been 6% and then they're down below 5% you are already too late you've got to look at the yield cycle as well relative to median house prices mm-hmm. um, cuz you're going to say something i was just going back to that point you said about you know if if you're going to if you're looking in the location and there's like two people at an open home or whatever, and then suddenly there's 60 people, that's one of the signs for us as a business to exit that market. You know, yeah. What about other people who are not us and do not have a business doing this? Mm. How, what do people do then? Like if it's like, okay, I've got this sign now that it's probably heating up and I've probably missed the window, what, what do I do? It's a good question, right? Because even in markets that have become overheated, we continue to look. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the Adelaide market is broadly spe- like broadly speaking, we haven't bought there in a little while, um, but we continue to look yep. um, because if you know that an area has good fundamentals, then it doesn't necessarily make sense to mm-hmm. just go and try and find somewhere where there's no one else buying. Right, yeah. that can't be the metric for making the decision. Yeah. Don't just go somewhere because it's quiet and go. Oh, yeah, I think I'm beating the crowd because that's not necessarily the way to do it either. <laughs> yeah. And to and to that point, you know, like I've had a lot of people ask me about Brisbane, um, and I, and pub, quite publicly, I'll state that that it's, you're probably two years too late. But that does not mean that Brisbane is not going to grow. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't mean Brisbane is not going to grow. I think Brisbane's going to do pretty well over the next few years, and so you could buy now, and you could get growth. Um, but it depends on what you're investing for and where you're at in your uh, investor cycle. Because if you're getting, you know, if you're getting yields below five percent, then you're probably not going to be cash flow positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so your holding costs are probably going to be significant. It's probably going to corrode your overall borrowing capacity, mm-hmm. and you're also probably going to be paying over what the intrinsic value of the property is worth. Okay, so there's a few different factors in there. So how can you think about it uh, if you are in that kind of a market? Well, one, you should do a bit of analysis to go, okay, is this the right market to be in, and where is it in the cycle? You know, how, how overheated is it? How far do I think it's got to run and why? Mm-hmm. And a, one way to think about doing that would be to look at all the infrastructure projects, jobs growth, um, longevity plans, council plans, uh, population growth forecasts, heaps of other stuff and go, okay, is this a short-term thing or is this a long-term thing? Uh, and then you should also potentially think about looking in other markets. Now, again, it's not to say that, it's not to say that buying in a... It's not to say that buying in a in an area that is booming is a bad thing, but you need to be a bit more opportunistic about it. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you can find really good deals in hot markets. You've got to be very quick when they come up, though. Yeah, obviously. Um, but it's not to say you can't buy effectively. It's just less common, and you actually have a way better opportunity to get better properties that are in a better proxy uh, in a better position for growth if you can get a little bit ahead of the crowds. I'm not sure if I answered your question though. No, you did. I'm just thinking. Sorry. As always, it generally comes down to what are you trying to achieve? Yeah, totally. <laughs> it comes down to where you are at in your journey and what this Where you're at in your cycle. Yeah, where, where, where are you? Um, what your next purchase needs to be. Let's loop back to something that we started touching on earlier, and that is mm-hmm. the fact that principal payments are profits, not cost of debt. A lot of people say, oh, yes. but my, my mortgage repayments are so high. I'm, on, I'm paying principal and interest and then oh, it's costing me so much. It's actually the, the interest component is the cost of debt. Yep. The principal component, that's profit, right? Because that is equity that you are putting back into the, back, back into the asset, right? That is cash flow that you are sacrificing in order to put money onto the balance sheet. Simple as that. 
So that is your owned equity. So what you what you're essentially saying, if you had, let me use the let me use the example of the five hundred thousand dollar property yielding at six point two percent again. Let's assume an interest rate of three percent just to have a baseline. If it was interest only, and we were not paying any principal down in year one, based on a based on some preordained uh, property management rates and insurance and all this kind of stuff, the net cash flow would be $11,300 thereabouts, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if we decided to pay principal as well, the net cash would be about three grand. So let's just say $11,000 minus $3,000, right? That's $8,000 of cash that we've decided to put back into the asset. So that's pure profit. Uh, there's no other way to view that. And so a lot of people get caught up in the cost of debt and they think, oh, it's costing me all this money to to pay down these assets. When in actuality, what you're doing is you're banking profits and you're just putting those profits aside in the asset. I think that's a real headbender for people to get their head around because if you really think about it, you know, the interest component on your investment is the tax deductible component because that's an operating cost of your real estate business. Uh, and the principal payment is just pure profit. Okay, so then you can choose: Do you want your profits to be in free cash flow, or do you pro- want your profits to be on the balance sheet as equity? Think about that. Yeah, it's really cool. It's actually I was thinking about how funny it is that how common, how frequently we refer to like um, balance sheets of profit and loss statements to try and um, explain and wrap our heads around um, these kind of concepts, and we talk about it quite a lot between us. Um, but for all the for all the accountants in the room, um, you can picture like a, like a balance sheet. There's like assets minus liabilities. Uh, sorry, assets equals liabilities plus equity. So your liability would be your loan, so your debt um, that you have with the bank. So that when you're paying down the principal, you're basically reducing that loan, which means that your equity, your owner's equity portion, is increasing. So that's yeah. kind of what you mean when you say paying down the principal is actually just profits because it's your equity that's increasing. Totally. And if we think about this from a business perspective as well, which is what we should of course be doing because we are, you know, we're serious property investors and real estate investing is a business enterprise. Yep. Um, If we think about it like that, so there's different ways to run a business too. So you can have have high growth, high equity businesses. They've got very low cash flow. They're typically the ones that you need to go and raise a lot of capital for, right? Mm -hmm. They're typically ones where you need to get outside investment, do capital raises and all of that kind of stuff. And you might have a lot of equity on the balance sheet, but no, no operating cash flow. Uh, so it's this, it's this equation that happens in in real time. Like you've got different types of businesses will have different financial structures. The key to having a healthy business that can grow effectively without having to seek outside investment and diluting your equity portions, and in other words, a JV is probably another way to think about that in in real estate. You know, like, mm-hmm. hey, uh, uh, I don't have enough cash flow to fund this. Can I, I need somebody else to come into the deal as well? Can you give me some capital? That would be a JV, right? So, but in 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 business, we'd call that you know uh, an equity partner or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's the same kind of thing. So we can then choose how do we want to operate our real estate business. Are we generating enough equity already? Do we want? Are we comfortable with the amount of cash flow we have within and outside the the asset? Should we have a higher amount of? Um, should we have a higher amount of cash flow? Should we should we take our? Should we keep our profits liquid by having an interest only loan? That's one mm-hmm. way to think about it. Keeping my profits liquid, uh, yep. or if you if you want to reduce the total cost of debt over the macro, you know, are you better off to pay that down? There's all these different ways to think about it, but understanding that. 
understanding that principal payments are not the cost of debt, right? That's that's yep. that's you banking profits and stockpiling. That's putting you putting money under the mattress. Is the easiest way to think about it. Um, now, that that what happens though, of course, as you reduce your debt, right? So as you bank profits and put them into the asset, you and you're reducing the amount of borrowed equity. Okay, so you're reducing the amount of debt you have. You obviously decrease the cost of debt because you have less debt to equity. Yes. Right. And so what that can do over the macro is increase the cash flow. Okay, so yep. you've got to play short, short game and long game with this. But if you can understand that the, the, the principle is not you, oh, I'm not paying back, you know, I'm not just giving money to the bank, you're actually giving money to yourself and that's pure profits. And if you were to look at, if you were to look at your real estate uh, investment using, you know, generally accepted accounting principles, GAAP, um, you would see that that would ring true for you too. I think, and I think the more that we can start to get our heads around these kind of numbers and start to think in um, in these kind of terms, I think we'll, we can make more empowered decisions. What do you think? Let's just head straight to debt. How does debt play a role in this, and how do you think about it? Like, is the as I said, it's how you think about it. Is my aim that the end game I should have no debt? Is it wrong or bad or not the greatest idea to have? 50% debt when I'm 80. Is that even an issue? You, you want the answer? Definitely. Depends. So here's the thing, <laughs> right? It, 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 it depends. So here's the thing. Here's the way to, like, let's talk about how to think about debt um, yeah. because every single person is going to be different. It's all going to depend on your risk profile. I am absolutely not going to sit here and say, well, everyone should have uh, 50%, uh, you know, loan to value ratio because. Hey, man, I don't know. Like, it depends. If you want to hire... I want, I want to caveat this, though. I had a conversation with a um, a broker who I will not name. Um, it's not the broker I use if you are listening to me. You were good about this. Um, but <laughs> he said to me, like, legitimately, you would not be wanting to head into your... He goes, you shouldn't be carrying any debt after 65. He said, your whole plan should be working. And I'm like, I don't think that's right. That's like, maybe. not... That, no, that, no. You, can't, you cannot live in those levels of absolutes. What happens if what happens if someone's listening to this and they're sixty and haven't built a wealth plan? Like they're gonna get a, guess what? Go carry some debt. Like it's not that it's debt is not bad. Nothing. There's nothing wrong with debt. It's all about managing risk. So if you want a higher return on investment, if you're optimizing for return on investment, more leverage is better. Like let's take this to an extreme. If you could, if you could have. A portfolio. If all of let's just simplify it. At one house, if you bought one house at one hundred percent LVR, right? Or let's just say ninety nine percent LVR, okay? And it's a five hundred thousand dollars house, and you bought it at ninety nine percent LVR. So you've only got one percent of debt of of equity in the property, and all of the rest of it is debt. And then, so you've got let's say five thousand dollars in the deal, and then and then it goes up by ten percent. Right, so it's made fifty thousand dollars of of operating profit. Now, just like all profits in any business, to get that profit out, you're going to need to pay tax on it. Okay, and this is scenario is called capital gains tax. But it doesn't matter. Even if you sell shares, you got to pay capital gains tax. Everyone goes, "Oh, what about the selling costs?" You got to realize selling costs or liquidation costs, regardless of how you access your capital. So I think that's a just a completely moot point. Anyway, moving on from that little rant. So. Um, if you've made $50,000 of, of profit out of 10% growth and you've only put $5,000 in it, I haven't got the maths on that, but what's that? What's that in terms of return on investment? It's like a 1,000% 10x? Well, it's 10x, right? So it's 1,000%. That is a 1,000% return on investment. 
So you say to someone like, do you want 1,000% return on investment? Awesome. Go and find go and find someone who will give you 100% LVR loan. <laughs> they exist, right? They do they, exist. They Scary, exist. But they do. Yeah, go and get a 100% LVR loan and go buy a house, right? And just like if it goes up, dude, crushing it on an ROI basis, right? That's That's awesome. But it's pretty high risk, right? Let's be honest, right? If you are leveraged that high, it is higher risk. Now, some people have got different risk tolerances and it's going to depend on where you are in your journey as well. So, for example, if um, let's just take an example that if you bought a 95%, I actually did this calculation now that I'm trying to remember the price point that I did it. I think I did a 95% LVR on a $300,000 property on an average growth rate of 5% a year and, uh, and it was on interest only at 6% yield, right? And so I did all these calculations. That was the basis of the test. I just wanted to kind of have a calculation on the ROI. I said if it grew at just 5% a year, so no moonshot growth, no double-digit years, nothing like that, just 5% a year, pretty pretty average. Now, and then I capitalized the growth and the cash flow together. And then I said, what if we sold it after five years? Because you get an interest-only period for five years, right? So I said, what if we just got one $300,000 property at 95% LVR, it grew at 5% a year, it was 6% yield, and it was on interest-only, and, in, and at four years and 11 months, we sold it. So then I factored in capital gains tax, I factored in selling costs, and then I said, okay, what would be the net return versus the capital injected? Now, I can't remember the exact numbers in front of me, but it was something like a uh, over the five-year period would be a 288% return on investment, which is an annual rate of return of 60% roughly, nearly. We we'll have to get someone to fact check our maths in this yeah. conversation. Uh, if anyone's listening, of course, quotable quotable numbers here. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally, totally. But like you know, I'll actually maybe record a record something and stick it in the show notes on this because it's really interesting. On a return on investment basis, it's it's quite good. But what you asked about was debt, and what's the end game? Is that the way you should think about optimizing your portfolio forever? Well, no, probably not, because that's not going to be optimizing for cash flow over the long term. So as you start to move into different phases in your portfolio, you're going to want to be considering what is the best based on your life plan and life situation. Okay, so to reiterate that around, okay, because this is the part where it's like, I want to make sure we answer this because this has been literally a question I've been thinking. I'm 32 today. I've got a good working career ahead of me. I enjoy my business and I want to keep doing it. Yeah. My earning potential across this time is solid. Well, I think it is. Yeah. Probably out people out there smashing it, but... When I look at that, I go, okay, well, if I'm going to take on 80% LPRs or anything right now, mm. I'm not as concerned because I can look down the road and say, well, there's years of good earning ahead of me potentially. Yep. And I'm comfortable with that because I can pay these things off or raise capital or do what I has. How does that change for the person that's, let's say, 60 then? Because they don't have that or 62. We'll use 30-year gap. Do you We're- change the way you think about debt and lending? I don't want to sound too ambiguous, but it entirely entirely depends because what it, what you're actually what you actually need to consider is not the debt. Don't think about the debt. The debt is just a, a tool. Like you know, the banks are saying like we're happy to secure against an asset at a certain basis. Now, eighty percent LVR. You got to think about that. What, how bad would that property need to go for it to go completely bad? Right. What what would need to happen if you had an eighty percent LVR? So uh, the bank owns eighty percent. You own twenty percent. For that property to go bad as in like for that to go into negative equity where you it's like it's you know potential to get foreclosed on and you know it's no good right we're for it to go bad it'd need to fall in value by 20 percent right now that has happened in australia you can look at places like perth and find examples of markets that have done that 
But that's where you need to start thinking about your risk and exposure. Like what are the drivers in the marketplace and all of that kind of stuff. You've got to think about your exposure risk. Would I, would I, if I was 65 years old, want to have a $10 million property portfolio leveraged at 80%? Probably not. But I would also say... I'd also say that's a little bit down to personal preference as well, right? Because here's the thing that you need to really be thinking about. You need to be thinking not so much about like, oh, what's my debt position? It's what's my risk exposure? What is my cash flow? How many moving parts do I want in my business, i.e. my property portfolio, all of that kind of stuff? Because there's a couple of different ways to think about it, right? If you if you owned less assets and had zero debt, they would be way higher cash flow. So what I spoke about a moment ago uh, was optimizing for return on investment. Typically, when you optimize for a return on investment, you're not optimizing for cash flow. That is not a good way to go for cash flow because the more debt you have, the more expenses you have. The debt totally, is the, you've got to pay more interest. Totally. The debt is the most expensive part of the operating costs of your real estate empire, right? Your real estate business. So then you've got to think about, well, what am I optimizing for? And we've, we've used that term a lot on these episodes. I think it's so, so critical to think about that in so many different ways. Because if you're optimizing for cash flow and you have more capital, then it kind of like it changes the game. Because you could, ex- you could for example, let's say you're a cash buyer and, you, you know, say you've got a million dollars in cash and you go and buy a $1 million uh, property that is yielding at 4%. Now, I'm not going to do the maths on that because I don't know it, right? but that's going to produce a significant amount of cash flow. Why? Because you've got no debt. So, well, a million dollar property, 4% would be 40 grand a year. Yeah, minus minus uh, minus things like property management rates and everything like that. So, there'd be a little bit of a net difference. Call it 30. We'll go 30. Yeah, then. Okay, cool. Awesome. Right? And so, if you had the ability to do that, you would have 30 grand cash flow. Now, if you said to someone... Do you want to buy a million dollar property that has $30,000 cash flow? Most people are like, oh my God, it sounds great. But what you're really talking about is what's the debt equation in, in that property. And this is, this is how I think that we need to change the way we think about debt and what the end game is. Because a lot of people will say, here's the strategy, right? You buy um, two properties every year and then in year, I've seen this played out before. It was like buy two properties every year uh, for 10 years. And, or maybe it's one property every year for 10 years and then get to year 10 and then sell half and pay down the other five and then you have five that give you the cash flow you need for, for life, right? I'm so happy you said that. That's literally the next question I had on my notes. So if you're oh, really? talking, yeah, because this is the next period. So you, we're talking about, okay, as you get older, the amount of debt associated to return versus cash flow and yeah. risk, which I think is the big one there. But then the next one I go to is if, even if you're that same person, and we'll use an example, pretend you've got 10 $1 million properties and you've bought one a year for 10 years, is the aim then to give it time to pay itself down from rents? So you say emotional and financial fortitude quite a bit. <laughs> what what do you mean by that and how does that affect um, asset allocation? Well, um, financial fortitude essentially is, you know, what is your financial IQ as well as your financial capacity, right? Mm-hmm. Because you can have a lot of money, but also have a low financial IQ. And a situation like that might be, let's just say that you've never had any money and you've never really, you know, money's never been a part of your life. You've never been a good saver or anything like that. But all of a sudden, you get a big inheritance and you've got a million bucks. You know, you might not have a very high uh, FIQ, right? FQ. So you've got to think about, okay, what actually is the, and like, do you understand, do you understand things like, you know, capital allocation ratios, yields, you know, 
cash on cash rate. Like, how, what's your understanding of the financial side of the transaction, or is it just like, all right, buy houses, right? So it's it's really about assessing, you know, financial understanding, uh, financial um, fitness. Like, uh, have you got a track record of being able to manage money property properly, all that kind of stuff? Um, that's that's kind of the financial fortitude side of things. It's not yep. just about money. It's about your understanding of money as well. That's a big one. Cool. Um, and then you've got emotional fortitude. Right? So some people uh, are more resilient than others. Some people have a higher risk tolerance than others. Some people like things when they're fast and fast-paced. And other, th- other people like things when they're slow and, 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 and easy. So if someone um, has a low tolerance for risk, doesn't want a lot of complexity, maybe has never gone on the journey before, is a little bit anxious about what's involved in property and how much, you know, and oh my God, how does all this work and how do property managers work? And, you know, if, it's, if there's a degree of stress involved, I would say that's a low emotional fortitude, right? Um, and that's okay because everyone starts somewhere, right? And then that's all good, right? So someone who, someone who has got a degree of, um, a degree of stress around the process I would say it's much more important to focus on assets which are not going to exacerbate that stress, right? Because you may buy a great property, but if you get to the other end of it and you've had this, you know, damaging, challenging, stressful experience where you're emotionally scarred because it was all too fast, too quick, too complex, too hard, the likelihood is you're not going to buy any more properties. Well, certainly not for a long time. And then that's actually going to move you further away from your goal, not closer to it. Mm-hmm. And so just in the same way that, you know, I might have a goal to run a marathon, but if I try and run a marathon, uh, if I just go, great, all right, I've decided I'm going to run a marathon and then go and try and run 40, whatever case it is, you know, I'm more likely to cause myself an injury. And also I'm going to, I'm, even if I did manage to complete it, I'm going to be in pain and I'm going to be hurting and I'm going to be like, screw this. I'm never running again. Running sucks. This is the worst thing I've ever done versus if I said, okay, cool, I would like to be able to run a marathon in 12 months. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to start by running one kilometer, right? And then slowly building up to that, I would would probably find that I have more enjoyment, more sense of achievement and more sense of fulfillment along the way. And I think that this is the the way to think about it. It's It's not about just going, how fast can I get into the highest ROI deal? It's about going, okay, what is actually going to satisfy me along the way? Because all of this is about the journey. You know, the goal is cool, right? But the goal is not going to happen really, really fast. You know, none of this is get rich quick kind of stuff. And so if you take a, you know, let's say a 10 year time horizon with the whole thing, you're going to have to, this is going to have to be something that you're going to enjoy. And you've got to think about, you got to think about that, not just about, not just about money as well. Does that kind of make sense? It does. And I think it's, I think it's way more important than people give it credit like the 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 role of emotions in property in this whole kind of world because it really starts with self-awareness right it's it starts with like taking stock of not just literally like um asset wise where are you at resources but where am i at in terms of like the the realm of my life and what else do i have going on and being really honest and clear with yourself about what i can take on right now so if we go back to that example of um, someone who's got, you know, maybe a lot of equity but um, not a lot of income and they're, they're kind of thinking that I'll go and do some kind of chunk deal or they might do like a – might try to do a, a full reno- renovation interstate. Like they'll, go, they'll do it borderlessly and not go there and try and manage that on top of their whole life. 
what is yeah. currently happening. And so we actually see this happen to people where they will take that on as their first investment kind of their first step into property investing and that's the first thing that they try to do because again it's a good strategy and works for some people but they're not thinking about how it fits into their whole life and so they go through that experience and it is so stressful it is so damaging just from the added stress that you end up leaving that experience you might have a financial reward off the back of it when you actually finally finish it but you are d- emotionally scarred from that experience and you automatically make the assumption, well, this isn't for me. Mm. And you and you jump to property investing is really hard because you've accidentally done the wrong strategy for where you're at emotionally at that point in time. Totally. It's kind of like it's kind of like dieting, right? Like if someone mm. wants to go on a diet and or, you know, let's say they're like, Hey, I'm too fat and I want to go on a diet and then they go to an extreme and they go, I can only eat grapefruits. <laughs> and they might lose a whole bunch of weight really, really fast, but it's not, you know, it's not going to be something they're going to be able to stick with, mm-hmm. you know, and they're going to bounce back and they're going to get back to where they were, right? Yeah. And so it's about going, okay, what's going to be sustainable? Like what's the sustainability um, uh, context with this whole thing, right? How do, yep. It's a marathon, not a sprint, right? Yep. Um, and to that degree, there's, there's this really interesting dichotomy though. It's like, it's cool for it to take some time. So let's just let's don't get don't get too caught up in, you know, you know, should this be a six percent yield or a six point two percent yield? Like given the time horizon, it doesn't really matter. Like as long as you don't run out of debt and capital, and as long as you're managing the, de- the your capital to debt ratios along the way and your debt to income ratios along the way, you're all good. Like you'll just you just keep on motoring, you'll just keep on humming. Which is, in fact, which is in fact why we have such a high volume of clients that are buying three to five properties a year, because we pay really close attention to okay, like what's what's the availability of debt and how we're going to manage that, mm. right? So you can kind of it's all good. Just focus on those things and you'll and you'll keep ticking through. If we're saying that on the one hand there's pent up demand, that's not going to be it's not going to be all applied in the same area because. As we all are aware, and as you've already illustrated uh, a couple of times, people are leaving places like Sydney and Melbourne in droves. At the same time, property prices in Sydney and Melbourne are going through the roof, right? So it's a bit of a there's a bit of a paradox there for sure. But people are moving, and they're moving for specific reasons. Now, I know you're a, a big proponent of your uh, big idea of the exodus to affordable lifestyle. I would push this a little further and add another vector to that. And off, we often talk about the holy trinity being cash flow positive properties in high growth areas with value add potential. But I would say the holy trinity of location selection at the moment would come down to three factors, affordability, lifestyle, and jobs. And so I would suggest that 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 is driving the demand centers at the moment, and that is going to be underpinning the areas that are going to succeed, not just on a sugar high basis, but also uh, to have longevity over the next decade. Well, it's a very good point. And I think a point needs to be made again and again and again to people that, yes, that there is this big trend. We call it the exodus to affordable lifestyle. People are moving to the smaller cities. They're moving to the peripheral of the big cities and they're moving to country areas. But it's, if, particularly if you're an investor, it's really important to choose your locations well, taking a long-term view because I think there's too many people buying willy-nilly thinking we can buy anywhere and get growth and that may be true in the short term, but it won't be true in the long term. There's got to be intrinsic drivers of growth in evidence if you go to target a particular location, not just because it's maybe a, a sexy coastal town and, and the prices appear cheap relative to where you're currently sitting, 
it needs to um, have some substance. Uh, it can't be a one-horse economy with just tourism or just agriculture. It needs well, to have well, more let, substance. Well, let me pose a challenge to that, right, because I would argue that to some degree even a small coastal town which purely only has one of the three core elements, maybe it's only got lifestyle, maybe the scale has got two, lifestyle and affordability, cheap to live there and it's right near the beach i can think of a plenty plenty of places like that particularly on queensland's coasts you know maybe places in the around the whitsundays and stuff like that where there's smaller regional areas great places to live could you argue that even without specific infrastructure jobs things like that that there could be sustainable market growth there because of the advancements and developments in technechnology and the shift to uh, remote work and all of that kind of stuff. Do you think that that, do you, or do you yeah. think that that's a mispla- misplaced understanding? No, I think you could make that argument. And you see, one of the problems we have at the moment is that we are in unprecedented times and some of the forces in play are quite new. That there's, there's never been a situation like this that we can go back to and compare as a precedent. And the fact that you've just raised is one of those ones. It, it could well be an only time will tell. What we know to be true up to this point is that locations that are very narrow and fragile economy, just tourism, for example, tend not to have sustainable long-term growth. And it's only when they places like the Sunshine Coast broaden their economy, have a big infrastructure spend, that the growth starts to become more substantial and uh, more sustainable. But um, if this trend continues, if people are just moving to places because of lifestyle, because of the ability to work uh, remotely, then um, it may uh, turn the dominant paradigm on its side a little bit and we'll have to start rethinking some of these these old beliefs. But I can't really answer and I don't think anyone can until we've had a few more years of it. Um, I think the trend's going to continue because it's media has tended to portray it as a response to COVID, but you and I know that's not true. It's been going on for longer and COVID has just enhanced and exacerbated it, but um, it it will continue because it's about technology and lifestyle. And we note that, um, for example, LinkedIn put out some material recently showing that more and more employers who use their platform to advertise jobs are actually proactively offering as part of the package the ability to work remotely because for some employers, and it doesn't work for everybody, but for some it works at both ends because the employers can potentially save a lot of money on their, their office costs if they have fewer people actually in-house working. So, yeah, places that don't have a lot of substance to the economy may actually have um, just this ongoing demand from people making that shift. Yeah, it's a, it's, an, it's an interesting one because actually we've seen that even with our, within our team members with the development of better connectivity and Wi-Fi and satellite internet and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, one of our core team leaders within our business, he is actually traveling around the country in his caravan working from his laptop as he literally travels around Australia. Currently, he's up around Broome and just enjoying it. <laughs> you know, and he's able to do that because of the, trans- the, because of the uh, transformation of the way that we work. But I'd also say there's another really interesting factor around all of this as well, around this kind of movement of people. Whereas a lot of people once, particularly with fly-in, fly-out jobs, which is probably going to lead into the next po- point about resources sector, with fly-in, fly-out jobs, often people were able to live where they wanted to live and would just fly to work and do their two weeks on, two weeks off or whatever the, whatever the rolling roster may be. 
However, with lockdown changes, that's shifted as well. And, and I think that that's an interesting and probably possibly unexplored paradigm around why some markets might be driving harder than others at the moment, particularly ones that have got at least a portion of their economy, which is related to the to the resources sector. I mean, I'm thinking of places potentially like, you know, the Hunter Valley, potentially places in Queensland and Western Australia, where, you know, it's, it's no longer practical. And in fact, businesses won't even allow employees to live interstate because of the risk of them getting shut out and losing half their workforce. What I think is good to talk about now, because it's like people are like, okay, cool, got it. Great. I need to set some rules and I need to set the right cadence, but what is the right cadence and how how should I think about doing that? And more specifically, how can I get more organized? Now, this comes down to basically treating your um, portfolio like a business, right? Um, now, in any business, actually, it's probably a bit it's a long, dro- long <laughs> bow to draw. Uh, I would say most intelligent businesses um, would do a quarterly planning session. They would do a quarterly review. How did we perform over the last quarter? Uh, and then a quarterly forward planning. What are our goals, KPIs, and objectives for the next quarter, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, I really can be, th- that can be called a review preview. Yeah, a review preview, right? Yep. And I believe that, that uh, all property investors should do a quarterly review preview of their portfolio. Now, the reason for that is it's going to give you a regular checking point to assess where you're currently at. Now, within the context of saying, well, you should go as fast as you can within the investment rules of your portfolio and, of course, within the financial you know, considerations of your family and life and all of that kind of stuff, then some of the ways you can do that, because a lot of people are like, well, is one a year the right cadence? Should it be one every month? Should it be one every six months or whatever? Um, the point is that you should consistently review the health of your portfolio because you might find you might say, oh well, I don't know, maybe it's like once every year. Whereas in actuality, maybe your properties are growing and um, performing really well, and maybe you could go every three months, for example. So I tend to think that quarterly is a really good checking point. And so what you can do every quarter is you can speak to your broker and just ask, hey, can can you order some valuations for the, the properties that I've got? I want to see if I've got any equity and, and if I can go again. Now, that's a good, good step. And the way to build consistency with that is to set a reminder in your calendar, for example, every three months, contact the broker, right? Mm-hmm. And so you'll then have an alert. So you don't even need to think about it. It could be on the 1st of, is it 1st of July, 1st of September or whatever to go, hey, Cool. It's time to reach out to the broker. Hey, hey, broker. It's me again. Just want to check in. Have I got any equity in these properties? Um, want to know if I can go again? Mm-hmm. Right now, if you do that, maybe you don't at that point, but maybe you're really close, and you might say, "Okay, cool. I'll check in again in a month, right, or two months." Um, otherwise, it might just be like, "Okay, great. Back to you again next quarter. Move on." Mm-hmm. Now, there's a few tactical things that I want to throw in here as well to to help manage this a little bit better because some people also don't really understand. Like, like I think my properties are positive cash flow. It seems like there's money in the bank. Like, uh, It's a little bit confusing and a little bit messy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are simple ways that you can help to manage this a little, a little better. Like, so for example, you can, you can get accounting and cash, cash flow management systems like, like Xero and there are a whole bunch of other ones, probably simpler than Xero. Xero is an accounting, um, uh, accounting platform that you can get and you can put your properties in, into Xero like business units basically. And then you can set up things like Receipt Bank, and then they then you can spend say one hour a week or two hours a month or whatever needs to be done for your portfolio to go. Okay, what are my what are my cash inflows and what are my cash outflows? And that way you're going to be able to catch things in your portfolio. Like, oh wait, hang on a second, I thought insurance was going to cost X, but it's actually costing X. Or 
I had allowed this much for maintenance, but in actuality, it's costing me more or less. Uh, and you'll be able to catch all that stuff early so you have a better, better head check on, on what's going on with your portfolio. Now, the reason that you want to do all of this is so that you're consistently in tune with the health of your portfolio and then you're creating the right structure and system. So you might have, it could be, you could set up, you know, the, the financial tracking systems using something like Receipt Bank or something like Zero. And again, there are plenty of other, you know, tools out there that you could use to achieve a, sim- a similar effect. Um, and then you could just say, well, once a month, I'm going to review my, um, my cash inflows and my cash outflows, and I'm going to check in with my property manager or property managers uh, once a month. Just you can dedicate four hours, one afternoon uh, on a Friday, last Friday of every month could be, for example, where you ring around, you go, hey, guys, just want to check in. How's everything going? How's, how's everything with the tenants? Is there anything I need to know? Is there any outstanding items that you haven't sent through? Um, is, you know, what, what's the rental market looking like? You know, when do you think we could put the rent up, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. All of that kind of stuff. And then check your cash inflows and cash outflows to know, okay, is this profitable or not? Am I producing more money than I'm using? If you do that as well as having a consistent, regular timing of like, okay, every three months I check in with the broker and go, hey, can I borrow again? What's going on? Like, what's, can you do an assessment on my borrowing capacity? Has it gone up or gone down? Can I refinance any of the properties? Is there a better loan product for me? Is there some way that I can optimize more portfolio? Just doing that is going to give you a much better process-driven approach to, to your portfolio, which will, probably, which will likely end up with you buying you know, two, three, four properties every year for a long period of time because you'll be approaching it with a different mindset and a different uh, level of professionality. Yeah, for sure. And I think the funny thing with this is that it's, um, like it's nowhere near as sexy as the time when you're going to buy a new property. Um, this is the maintenance work. Like this is the habits that actually help people to succeed in whatever they want to do. Like it's the maintenance, the daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly habits that people take and stick to that actually help them to succeed in mm. whatever they're trying to do. So it's not necessarily all the excitement those few months when you're buying a property that is moving you forward. Obviously, you're doing the action that will move you forward, but it's the all the supporting activities that you do and stick to that will make sure that you are taking this seriously and taking it professionally. Um, and so from um, just from like on the quarterly review as well, you can, if you have a good property manager, um, getting a, like a quarterly, you know, as you said, you can reach out to your broker to get an update on your borrowing capacity and um, like a, a valuation on your property is to see like on the asset and income side of things like where are you sitting there but on the expenses side of things you can work with your property manager as well to see if on a quarterly basis they can send you an export of all of the expenses that have come through that property as well um and so if you're using an accounting software like zero or something you can then match them and reconcile them and make sure that you know where all the money has gone uh and from like a daily just general hygiene like businesses have separate bank accounts for the business separate from the directors of the business so the company itself owns a bank account or several where the money comes in and goes out so that every transaction that's Mm. in that bank account is related to that business and not related to the directors Mm. and so this is a really critical thing that i always advise people is set up at least one separate bank account for your property investment preferably one bank preferably yeah preferably one bank account per property so it just needs to be like an everyday transaction account where all of your cash, like all of your rental income goes into that account 
and then all of your repayments and anything that you any of your invoices that come in that you need to pay go out of that account so you can really clearly see is your cash balance going up or down um and if your positive cash flow it should consistently be going up and you're always going to consistently have um a real delineation between your accounts of what is actually related to each property so that if you're doing it because even if you do it on a quarterly basis if you've got all of your transactions got just going through your normal life account you're going to have to go through every single transaction that you've ever made using your personal card in that three months and that can be quite a few when maybe they're not really relevant to your portfolio whereas if you split it out into different bank accounts you might have 10 transactions for the quarter and you can easily get through that and have conversations with people about it um so that's just on a really general hygiene like have separate bank accounts if you can um and they're really easy to set up you just contact your bank you can do most of them online now you just request totally. open a new account so it's definitely worth it and I, lo- I love all of these conversations right because it's it's multiple times a week talking with clients about uh what is it what's the end goal right it's always like start with the end in mind it is what are you trying to achieve in your life financially like what is going to fill your cup in the next 10 15 20 whatever the end goal timeline is and how do we strategically work backwards from that and reverse engineer of okay what assets do you need to buy that are going to exactly how you explained they stack up and then you can leverage out and do into more cash flow and and building out these assets that are strategically designed to get you to that end goal whether that's buy a dream home for five million dollars whether that's you know replace my income in five years whatever that goal is and so this is how all of our client relationships start it's about going where do you where do you want to be at the end how do we need to plan your portfolio to get to that okay what is the next asset that we need to buy mm. and then we help you go and find the best asset that's actually going to to do that first piece yeah it's such a good point that you've raised there gabby because a lot of people think that oh okay so we just go and buy heaps of properties that's it we just go and buy heaps of properties <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah? um interestingly i had a conversation with a, a client of ours who we're actually in the process of going, well, how do we restructure the whole portfolio? They bought a bunch of properties before they came to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and in actuality, they got this, like the, the, the portfolio hasn't been structured correctly. And so mm-hmm. what, that, what that actually means is that they're, if they keep going in the way that they're going based on their current savings rate and household income, they're, they're not going to get to their destination. So what that means is they're not save, not able to save a lot because they've got a young family, they've got you know, all of that kind of they're stuff. They're running out of gas. Yeah, they're running out of gas. And so if they just keep leveraging, they've got a few residential properties, but if they just keep trying to leverage to get more capital, their cash flow is going to decrease, their borrowing mm-hmm. capacity is going to decrease, and they're on a downward spiral. And so in that specific scenario, uh, what we're looking at doing is selling off a large portion of the portfolio to then go and fund a higher cash flow asset so they're starting from a higher yielding base so they don't run out of serviceability as much and then repurposing the capital to be to be supported in that way. Mm. Um, and all of this has to be thought about if if you're, you know, no one should start investing if they don't know why they're investing. Just don't. Just go and do anything else, right? Yeah. Do any, literally anything else. Um, 
But if you do know where you want to get to, you need to think what strategically and systematically are the processes going to be or what types of properties do I need to buy in what order? How do I make sure I don't get stuck? What is the you know what are the steps that I need to take to get from where I am now to where I want to be? Um, and how do I make those decisions in the in the right way at the right time? Uh, and for a lot of people, it's going to be sort of slightly contrarian. They're going to need to re reassess what their values are. Most most people would say, yeah, look, I want to own my own home, and it's like, well, yeah, but would you want to, you know, I don't know if you're in Melbourne, would you want to own your own home in Caroline Springs, or would you prefer to own your own home in Brighton, right? So, for example, right. And so you've really got to weigh up the the short versus the long, and oh, I, I think you know weigh up not the risk versus reward, but short term gain versus long term gain. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I don't think that that needs to be some brutal compromise where you're like, okay, well, I'm just gonna go and slave away, and I'm gonna live like you know I'm gonna make my life basically suck right now so that I can live a better life later. I don't think that that's true. Like I don't think that you have to you know, cut yourself down to the bone now in this, you know, and hold up this destination that you're eventually going to get to if you do everything right. I think, why don't we aim to have it all? Like, why why don't we have our cake and eat it too? Why don't we have fun along the way and also achieve great levels of prosperity and abundance and, and happiness? And, you know, happiness is not a destination. It's a state of being. And I think that people need to think about what is going to make me happy on this journey, not just will I be happy at the destination. Because I can tell you, if you've had a bad time getting to the destination, it's probably going to be bittersweet. Let's sort of uh, look a bit further then in terms yeah, let's, of... Let, let's, keep, let's keep pumping through it because there's a few, there's a few, thi- there's a few things attached to that, right? So as I said, if you could work out how to get into the market before the boom, then that would be awesome, right? And that's kind of the thing. Like the secret really is to understand where and when to enter different markets. And it's no good just saying where, like, I don't know, Sydney's a good market, but the other key part of that is when. Um, and so if we jump onto the the next slide, Wishy. So often people, anyone who's heard me talk uh, before, I talk a lot about the holy trinity of property, right? And when we talk about the holy trinity of property, we're talking about properties that are in high growth areas that are cash flow positive and with value add potential, right? But uh, what we actually want to look th- talk about today is what is the holy trinity of location selection, right? And really, there are obviously a lot of different uh, aspects to to. There's a lot of you know, there's a lot of science and stuff that goes into it. But it cooks down to some very simple characteristics: jobs, lifestyle, and affordability. Right? That that particularly right now in today's housing market, they are the three things that are driving that are driving growth. Now, interesting look at Bondi Beach. Now, I live here, right? And I can tell you, I can tell you that. Um, there are no there are no major new infrastructure projects. There is no new uh, initiatives that are driving more jobs. Um, it's got lifestyle, right? But it's not got the affordability. It's just jumped by thirty five percent, right? And there's no fundamental change in the location. So what that says to me is that the boom isn't sustainable. Like the spe- specifically, the sharpness of the current boom is isn't sustainable. Yep, property the market is still going to go up over time. But that says to me it's more of an anomaly because you're, you're not underpinned by fundamentals. Um, yeah, yep. good read. So, what when we were talking about getting you know, the where and the when on how to get in, into into different markets, and Bushy, you touched on it a moment ago uh, about the cycles, right? And so, as you said, you know, if you can be in a market for 15, 15 years at least, you're likely to pick up two cycles. Now, markets do move in cycles. The timing, 
does differ, right? But anyone who thinks Sydney prices just only go up is sorely mistaken, right? Because they also go down and sideways and do all these other kind of things as well. So every single market in Australia goes through this cycle pattern. For those of you who... Um, who are just listening and not watching this, we've got a graph on the screen which shows uh, the average growth rate as a as a as a linear median median um, you know uh, a, a straight line basically, but it also shows the cyclical nature of property prices uh, relative to the average growth rate. And, now, and the- yeah, just just to verbally describe that, it's it looks like an S curve. So if we if you're listening mm-hmm. to this, imagine an S curve where the, mm-hmm. the bottom of that S uh, is fairly flat for between five to eight years on average. It, it varies by location. There's no set rule on this, but between five and eight years. And mm-hmm. then we see this sharp upward spike, yep. uh, which normally goes between sort of three to five years on average. And, and then it plateaus again, and it goes through the the, the flat flat desert stage and then you'll see this spike in, in growth exactly so you- yeah the way that i the way that i explain it is that a lot of people talk about the property clock and i know you do as well but the thing about when people think about a clock is they think it's a circle right they think it goes up and down and around and around it's actually more like a staircase right as yes. you say it goes a little flat and then it goes up and then it goes across and then it goes up and then it goes across and look the across often does have a little bit of a down dip as well right um, but the point is you want to work out how to get in at the at the foot of the stair. Like how do you get how do you get in right before it starts to go up? Um, so the interesting thing about that, just jump to the next slide as well, um, is that rents typically work in a, in an antithetical phasing to property prices because what tends to happen is that as we talked about jobs get you know jobs are one of the drivers lifestyle affordability people will move to a location because they're attracted by jobs and opportunity and prosperity they'll rent first because they haven't lived there before they don't know where they want to live and what the good location is rents go up rental demand increases then as rent increases start to go up too high people start thinking hang on a second is it worth continuing to rent should I buy and then they start buying houses that pushes up property prices Etc. And so it's a virtuous cycle that feeds into itself. And so it ends up being like a bit of a snake that swims past itself over and over again. And so if you can get the timing right, which is on the next slide there, if you can get the timing right, you can actually target getting into the right markets at the right place at the right time to capture both uh, a maximum rent cycle and also a pre-boom property cycle. And this this is the secret, right? Because anyone who thinks that you can't time markets, I, I sort of say to them, well, just it doesn't matter. Just go buy anywhere then. Just doesn't matter. Just, just buy, <laughs> buy anything. Just buy anything and just whatever, move on. Um, but if you're actually interested in trying to work out, okay, when and where and how can I make sure I'm not buying in the wrong part in the cycle, there is a process to it. And we call this the gold, finding the Goldilocks zone. What advice do you have for somebody else who who wants to you know who's thinking about getting started or is maybe you know wanting to achieve similar similar outcomes? Like, what guidance would you? What advice would you have for somebody else who is thinking about getting started? Spend the time getting educated. I know a lot of people say that, but I think that is the. Although I have to put a grain of salt on that, I will say I probably wouldn't have gone as hard if I knew things like I do today. Mm. I think there's a helpful amount of ignorance that will get you in the game. (laughs) But then past there, the education process makes it easier to navigate. So for anyone that wants to go the route we have with the uh, pathways we have, you really have to understand it to avoid emotional uh, points. Because we had many points where we got uh, hit from the side or were challenged in ways we weren't expecting and better education there from our point would have served us very, very well. So that would be my number one thing. And then the second one I would say is that it is ignorant and foolish to think you can just do this on your own. Yeah, There are so many components and people who have specialized skills 
Like I, I remember once, Goose, you showing me what goes into actually finding a location. And I, I remember just walking away from that going, wow, I'm just never going to do that. <laughs> it's, so I was like, okay. And then even to our broker, the same thing. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, is there, I mean, I'm personally, I'm really impressed with, with, uh, with you guys. Having, having not only had the opportunity to work with you, but also get to know you guys. Not a lot of people have the emotional fortitude, the, the, the financial acumen and stuff to be able to see this through. A lot of people sort of will find their own friction. And what I mean by that is even though they can continue to move things forward, they'll choose not to just because it can feel a little bit... Um, it can feel quite daunting, you know. So it's not—it's no mean feat to do what you guys have done, and it, it does take. There's a huge mindset piece involved as well. It's not just like, "Hey, can you afford to do it?" Great, just go and buy more properties. There's a massive mindset piece, and it's been really interesting to see you guys evolve, both of you, and and uh, and you know, and and you know, Bianca, you're taking this on. I'm really starting to run it like a like a business as well, which is which is awesome. And seeing that development in both of you, I think, has been been fantastic it's required that you've had to grow as individuals to be able to do that. And I think that that's the, that's something that I've noted, noted the most. What do you guys, uh, do you guys have anything to add to that? It's really cool to hear that. I'll say. Yeah, it's nice. Cause when you're the one stuck in it, doing it and, and um, you know, dealing with the, the wins, but also the delays or the painful points along the way, it's hard to see that. Um, yeah, and I'm sure yeah. for everyone that does property, there's doubt moments, there's fear moments, there's greed moments. And um, I, I go through all of that, and at the end of the day, we're, I'm probably thrilled we've taken the steps we have. Like, I like to think we've done it as smartly as we could. Some people may say otherwise, but I'm thrilled with the approach and I've been happy, very happy with it. In the spectrum of things, what's more important? In the, in the spectrum of being able to continue to build your wealth over time, keep serviceability up, continue to buy more properties, get that critical mass, do all that kind of stuff. What's more important, cash flow or growth? I understand that growth ultimately will give you way more wealth, but at the same time, yep. if you hit a barrier and you, like, if you had a choice between getting a property with a six percent yield and a nine percent yield, and one got, I don't know, six percent, one was six percent yield and six percent growth, and one was nine percent yep. yield and and four percent growth, what would the choice be? That's an awesome question, and I love it. So, what my formula is is accelerators plus accumulators plus lifestylers plus risk management equals an unbelievable life. And what I mean by that is you start with your accelerators, which are your cash flow positives. You need to build a base. If you start with your growth properties, you're going to have a whole heap of grief because you're not going to – and that's, what I, that's how I came up with what I did because I only bought high growth, negative gear properties for a lot of years and it caused me grief. I had tens of thousands, more than that, coming out of my pocket every year in negative gearing when the interest rates were 8%. It was a killer diller. And so that's why I decided to go off and start buying in America. And I bought heavily over there and it turned out really, really well. Uh, and that was to offset my negative gearing in Australia. Mm. And then I took that concept into what I'm doing now. But yes, yeah, so I, you need your, your cash flow positive properties to build a firm base. So you're not relying on your way because things can go wrong. Once you've got the firm base, you can afford to buy your growth property because it, it's going to cost you, let's say, 10000 a year to keep it. You've got that money already because you've got this base of cash flow positives to afford because you do need the growth to get to the critical mass of assets. But then once you've got your, this is my belief anyway, once you've got your cash flow positives, you, you get a one or two growth, you don't even need any more than that, then I would transition to what I call lifestylers, which are properties which are giving you extreme income. 
Yeah. So these are high end, and oh, you've talked about I think as well. Like for me, that's things like you know rooming houses, commercial. Yeah, yeah, it's um, what we call legacy. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's any of those that yeah. have probably got commercial lending, huge amounts of cash flow, probably a little bit harder to leverage, a bit more complex, but ultimately yeah. total income replacement. Type yeah, stuff. like I'm doing one for a client, a childcare center. Yeah, you know, you're getting three hundred ninety thousand year net income from the childcare center. You know, what's the cost? On, what's the cost on that roughly? Five point five mil. <laughs> Yeah, but net cash flow, the way we've structured it, from day one, he's going to have $21,000 per month net cash flow. Sounds rough. Net. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Well, he's a doctor. <laughs> so he got money. <laughs> but look, Crikey. there are things you get to at the end, but you need to set your base. Yeah. You can't start at the cream if you haven't got a foundation set up. You need that, that base to get you moving. Yeah, that's totally. and, you, and that's exactly yeah, what. That's and that's exactly what. That's I believe, 100. I agree wholeheartedly, and we work through those three different phases as well. 